0: Parenting Great Kids is brought to you by Ravel, Education a la Carte. Want your child to flourish in his or her school environment, to master real life skills, to succeed in his future endeavors? Now's the time to actively engage your child's education with Education a la Carte. In this practical book, parenting expert and longtime educator, Dr. Kevin Lehman, takes the guesswork out of choosing the best schooling for your child. He explores the pros and cons of public, private, and charter schools, as well as homeschooling and online schooling. Visit rebelbooks.com to learn more. And by Cooper Tire. Friends, I'm a safety nut, and isn't it crazy to think that your four tires are all that connect you and your car to the road? Thankfully, Cooper Tires has more than a century of experience in manufacturing comfortable, capable tires. Each Cooper tire is made to last for thousands of miles and to help you safely get to where you need to go and back again. Their dedication to quality means they understand precisely why your tires matter, which is why you can count on Cooper, an American company since 1914. For more information or to find a Cooper Tires dealer near you, visit coopertire.com. Count on Cooper and visit coopertires.com today. For 30-plus years, I've seen every type of child grow up. Instead of
1: giving me what I wanted, she gave me what I needed, which was truth.
0: Don't let emotions win. Let truth win. Do your very best, and you should have a lot of fun while you do it. And the better you get at something, the more fun you're going to have at something. You moms and dads are wired with everything you need to be a parent to a great kid. Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 37 Raising a Child with Special Needs. I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. Today, I'm honored to welcome my dear friend, Chris Hogan, and his sweet wife, Melissa. Many of you know Chris from his work with Dave Ramsey, teaching families about the importance of planning for retirement. But what you may not know is that one of Chris and Melissa's sons has a rare medical condition. Today, we'll be talking about their family's journey, what their learning from it and how to support families who have children with special needs. Also in this episode, I'll be featuring a listener question from a mom struggling to get her toddler to eat. As always, I'll share my points to ponder so you can start using them right away. And remember, don't just download episodes, click subscribe. When you do that, you're joining my parenting revolution and every new episode will automatically show up in your subscribed list. And we'd love for you to write us a review on iTunes and let us know what you think. Also, not only are we on iTunes, but the Parenting Great Kids podcast is also available in the Google Play Store and on Stitcher. So no matter where you get your podcast, subscribe today and don't miss a single episode. Here are my points to ponder. First, give your spouse room to process his or her feelings. Men and women process sadness, anger, guilt, and other feelings very differently from one another, and it's important for each parent to know that they can deal with their feelings their own way. So it's important that you as a spouse support your spouse when you've heard the news that your child has a special need and that your life with this child is going to be very different from what you thought it was going to be. There's a lot of charged emotion early on in the process and as you go throughout your life with your child because your child's needs are going to change, their development is going to change, their health is going to change and even each of you is going to process every change differently. So give your spouse room to do what he or she needs to do. You know, it's difficult enough and it's very important for parents to come together and work together and to recognize you're on the same team here. Often when parents have difficulty with a child, there's a lot of subconscious blame that one parent feels towards the other. Or there's anger about how uh, one person is parenting that child or parenting the other child. So it's really important to understand that you're giving each other room to not only feel differently, but to parent differently and to figure this whole thing out. Parents with children without special needs go through that anyway. It's very common for parents to dislike the way one parent is parenting and to get angry at the way they're doing things because they're not doing things your way. But this is accentuated and exaggerated in a child with special needs. So it's really important that you stand back and you respect the other person's parenting style, that you talk about it frequently, and that you also respect their feelings and how they process those feelings along the way. This is going to be an evolving process. It's going to change. You're going to change over the years. Your spouse is going to change over the years. And how you deal with your feelings is going to change. So there are a whole lot of moves. Parts here, both with you and with your spouse, both in your feelings and in your parenting styles. So just take a big, deep breath and give some grace to your spouse. That's the best way I know how to describe it. And I think that when you hear Chris and Melissa talk, you're going to hear that they gave each other room and space to do things the way they had to do them. Because you'll hear them each talk about what they did with their feelings early on in their relationship with their son. And then as time went by, Second If you're a friend Of a parent Of a special needs child Don't ask What that person needs Just start Giving it to them You know Many times when we have a friend who's going through a difficult time, maybe the death of a spouse or the death of a parent or illness with a child, we want to do something, but we're uncomfortable talking to our friend about the difficulty they're going through. So sometimes we just don't say anything or we don't do anything. For heaven's sakes, don't do that. Risk saying and doing the wrong thing rather than doing nothing. But Oftentimes, we will go to that friend and we'll say, please, call me if you need anything. And the problem with that is that those people don't call us if they need anything. You know that. If a friend came to you and you were having a difficult time and they said, please, if you need anything, give me a call, you're not going to call that friend and say, you know what, I'm about to lose it today, so would you please come over to my house and stay with my kids for a couple hours so I go out for a walk? Or you know what, I just don't have time to clean I don't have time to cook I don't have time to be here for my son when he comes home from school because I'm at the hospital with this other child you're not going to call your friend so the most important things to do and you'll hear Chris talk about this beautifully at the end of our conversation is to offer specific help right away say to that friend you know what I am free to babysit every Monday evening or every Monday afternoon. So why don't I come over and I will stay with your child while you take your other kids out and do something? Or you may say, you know what, I love to cook. So how about three times a month, I'm gonna come over and I'm gonna bring you a meal that's frozen. Throw it in your freezer. If you wanna eat it, great. If you don't wanna eat it, that's okay. Or maybe you're a dad who takes your kids out every Saturday afternoon to the park. Offer to take one of their kids to the park or all of their kids to the park with you. Take the special needs child and all the other kids or just take the special needs child or, or just the other two. You get what I'm saying. Try to put yourself in their situation. Find out what they need. Find out what would really help them and then offer that to them. Say, you know what? On Monday night, I'm going to do this or Saturday afternoon, I'm going to do this. They can always say, no, thank you. But most likely, they're going to say, you know what? thank you so much. You don't know how much that means to us. And once you start to do it, if you can commit to do it regularly, put it on your calendar, send them a Google invite, you know, ask if they have a Google calendar, if you can just do that regularly, once a month, once every other month, once a week, whatever you can do. And as you're doing that moms and dads, invite your kids to help you too. Invite your kids to reach out to their family. Get your kids involved. Your kids will feel important. They'll love it. They'll learn from it and they will be blessed and your whole family will be blessed too. So remember to do that. Don't just say, call me if you need anything. Third, if you're a parent of a child with special needs, don't feel guilty about spending more time with the child with special needs than the other kids. That's just going to happen. And I hear this from parents a lot who have a child with a special illness. That child has needs that require more time from parents than the siblings do. Children need visits to the doctor, to hospital, to therapists, and they require extra help at home. They just require extra care and extra time. A lot of parents worry about the effect that this is going to have on giving more time and attention to the child with special needs. What effect that's going to have on their other children who are healthier? Are those children going to resent the child with a special needs? Are they going to be angry with the parents for not spending more time? Well, the answer to that is yes and yes, and that's okay. There are going to be times when your child may feel resentful towards that child. That's normal. So talk to your kids about that. They're going to feel Angry at you because you're not with them enough, particularly when they're younger and they don't really understand what's going on, and they feel that they're the center of the world and they don't understand why you're with their brother or sister rather than them all the time. It's normal for them to feel angry. So talk to them about it. Say, you know what, honey, I know this makes you feel very angry with me because I can't be with you. But you know what? Just know that I want to be with you and I'm going to make time to be with you. So expect them to have feelings that you may feel. They're going to be angry. They're going to feel guilty. They're going to feel sad. So give them room for that and don't reprimand them, but talk them through it. It's also important for you to realizing that you're doing the best you can do. You need to sleep too. You will hear Melissa talk. She's a very energetic person. She's a trained attorney. She started a foundation for um, her son's illness. And she says, well, you know, she doesn't sleep very much at night. And that really concerns me as her friend. It's really important that you give yourself some grace and say, you know, I'm doing the best I can. In order to be a decent mom to all my kids, I need to sleep eight hours a night. So this is what I need to do. Recruit help if you need to. Don't do some things. Ask somebody to help you clean your house. Ask somebody to help you with your child. Ask somebody to to bring your child to a doctor's visit if you need to, but realize you're doing the best that you can do. So it's really important to really peel off any guilt that wants to stick to you. That's the best way I can describe it. It wants to be there. Refuse it, reject it, peel it off. Talk to your other children about the situation that your family's going through. Ask them to join you in helping with their sibling. That will help really assuage some of their um, anger or their hurt. It makes them feel important and it brings the family together. And as a matter of fact, what I hear from 99% of the siblings that I have worked with who've grown up with a sibling with a special need is that they are incredibly blessed by that child. What they get back from that child is far more than what they feel taken away. In the early years, they may feel differently, but as they mature, they feel like they get so much out of that child and from their family, from being a a unique situation. Also, it's important, parents, with your children who don't have special needs, make sure that you plan trips or outings with them very frequently. They don't have to be long. An hour on a Saturday afternoon. Take a Sunday afternoon. Have somebody come in and stay with your child with special needs and take your other kids off doing something for the entire afternoon on a Sunday. Do it as frequently as you can and put it on the calendar. You know, it really frustrates kids when you say, don't worry, we're going to do things together. It's going to happen. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. But if you don't write it down, it doesn't happen so carve out time for your other kids and if you can involve the um, include the special needs child great and if you can't that's fine leave him or her behind and take your other kids and write it on the calendar that way your other kids know you're serious about spending time so whenever they start to feel left out they can remember oh yeah mom and dad are going to do something with me on saturday so it's really important to do Parents, we all know that talking with our kids about sex is uncomfortable. And when it comes to having that initial talk with your child about sex when they're about eight years old, I always say in every couple there's one who's a chicken and one who's an even bigger chicken, who just won't have the talk at all. But the truth is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, beginning a conversation about sex early with your child is extremely important because it puts you in the driver's seat. The tricky part is many parents often don't know where to begin or where to end? What if they say the wrong thing? What if they talk too much or too little or use the wrong words? Too often, not knowing how or when they should approach the topic of sex with their child, many parents just don't do it. And then this leaves your child at the hands of the culture or his friends to teach him about sex. I have created a digital toolkit just for you called How to Have the Talk with your child it walks you through the process of having that initial conversation with your child about sex the toolkits packed with a variety of resources and all the information you need to get ready to have that initial conversation including ages and stages chart to help you determine when to have the talk with your child There's an ebook on talking to your child about sex, a script to help guide you through the discussion. And for those of you who are really, really chicken, you're the big chicken, it even includes a video of me giving the talk directly to your child. How easy is that? Talking to your child about sex doesn't need to be intimidating or scary. It can be really a great experience and it'll help you establish a strong relationship with your child. I'm excited to offer you How to Have the Talk with Your Child Toolkit for 20 to 0% off. Just go to my website, megmeekermd.com. Click on Parenting Resources and user code TALKPODCAST when you check out. Parents, this topic about sex is far too important to hand over to somebody else to talk to your kids about. You need to do it. Go to my website. Check out How to Have the Talk with Your Child Toolkit. 20% off. You need to stay in the driver's seat when it comes to talking to your kids about sex. And I'm here to help. So parents thanks for listening. This is episode number 37. Stay with us. So now I'd like you to listen in on a conversation I had with Chris and Melissa Hogan about their family's journey with having a child with special needs. It's a very touching and important conversation and I'm so honored to be able to share it with you right now. Chris and Melissa Hogan, I'm so happy to have you with me today. You have a very unique story, and I wanted our listeners to be inspired and encouraged by the life that you have lived with your three boys. So thanks so much for joining me on my podcast. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having us.
0: You bet. Melissa, I'm going to start off with you. You have a son with special needs. You have three boys and one of your sons has special needs. Can you tell our listeners what he has and how long he's had it? Yes, absolutely. He has a rare genetic disease
1: called Hunter syndrome or mucopolysaccharidosis 2. And since it's genetic, obviously he's had it since birth, but we discovered it when he was two years old, actually, Mm -hmm. because my mom saw a TV show about the disease and diagnosed it, which was pretty miraculous.
0: Wow. Shame on your pediatricians, huh? Your mom came through for you. She did. She did. But his symptoms were so mild at
1: the time that that I really don't blame the pediatrician. Uh, it was pretty early. What were his symptoms at the time? He had chronic runny nose, lots of cold and respiratory infections. Uh, he walked uh, a little differently, and his development had started to stall. Mm -hmm. And so she just saw those very unique and seemingly mild symptoms if you looked at them separately.
0: You know, it's interesting because there's so much medical information available to people that didn't used to be available, like a television show about different kinds of pediatric ailments. How did you feel when your mom came to you and said, hey, I think there's something more going on here? Well, I actually didn't look it up right
1: away. I Googled it the next day, and when I saw the pictures of the boys, which uh, they have a look for this disease, I knew right away that's what he had. But it was it was pretty devastating because it's a terminal and degenerative disease with an average lifespan of, you know, in the early teens.
0: Mm. So, Chris, you are the dad... You're the guy who's supposed to make life okay and right and safe and good for your kids. Tell me what it was like for you as a father when you heard the news about your son's diagnosis.
2: Well, I can tell you this. Um, as a dad, it was, it was devastating. Um, it was one of those things where I really went through a range of emotions of being frustrated, uh, not wanting to believe it, uh, to truly becoming angry. Uh, frustrated and then ultimately very, very sad, mm-hmm. uh, my heart was broken for this child uh, because i i didn 't know you know what all was going to be involved and what it was going to look like, but I did know that the dream that I had for my child now his life was going to look totally different, and mm-hmm. so uh, it was heartbreaking there for a while. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you two work that through together, or didn 't you Did you have to sort of work it through individually? and then come together as a couple, or did you kind of process it together? Or How do you do that as a mom and a dad, husband, and wife deal with such heartbreaking news?
2: Well, I I mean, I I can speak, and then Melissa can join in. I I would say we probably didn't do it well (laughs) Uh, Well, initially. How uh, can you do it well? Yeah. Well, it was yeah. just, you know, the emotions are so raw as you're trying to process. And, you know, she really dove in and became more of an expert on the disease. And I probably resisted diving in too deep uh, as I was trying to process. But I, I would say in that scenario, we definitely had to process individually. Now, we were tactical together uh, in the things yes. to do. I mean, that, that was no doubt. But I think mm-hmm. on the emotional side of processing it, that it was an individual thing that slowly began to become more together in the process.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you sort of went at different rates. I could just imagine myself crying all the time and my husband not talking and this going on for a few years. Were you in my home?
2: (laughs) Were you in my home?
0: Is that pretty much how you guys did? I mean, you know, we all have our own personalities and we handle grief so very differently. I imagine it was very stressful on your marriage. It was.
1: It was. I think we did process it differently. I did probably cry every day for a year. I would say. And I found what I call my tribe. So some other moms who also had kids that were just recently diagnosed with Hunter syndrome, and we really tried to process it together. So that was really, really important. But Chris and I did sit down and say, okay, we have to do X, we have these doctors, we have these visits, we have these therapies we have to do. And
0: so those tangible
1: things made us have to develop a plan together.
0: So you could walk it out and go through the motions, but I imagine, you know, you couldn't direct how the other person sort of felt and that kind of a thing. You just had to sort of let them be who they were and feel what they felt and then just keep acting and, and moving forward, I guess. Chris, did you find a tribe or did you not need a tribe?
2: Uh, initially, I would say that I didn't need one. It was one of those things. And looking back on it, that was probably, uh, well, no, that was a mistake. I chose to go the island route initially as I was processing and trying to really wrap my head around it. Looking back, uh, I would have encouraged me to be more open. Uh, to Mm -hmm. talk about it with people sooner. And not just the factual stuff, Dr. Meg, but really the emotional side of things, Uh, how it's making me feel, not just the tactical stuff. I I wish I would have done that better earlier.
0: That's hard for men, isn't it? I don't want to speak for men, but in my experience, it's, it's hard. Women tend to, you know, we express our feelings. We look for help. We look to friends. We talk, talk, talk. We figure it out. And I think that it's really hard, and particularly for any dads who are listening out there, What would you say to that father who just found out, for instance, that his child has a terminal illness or an illness that may not be terminal, but it's definitely going to change the dreams that he has for the child or the future for that child?
2: Yeah, I would say if I was talking to that dad one on one, I would tell them to take a collective deep breath and whatever you are feeling is real. That it's not, you don't need to mute how you feel, but we do have to make some decisions. And I think it's looking at it and really understanding what you can control versus what you can't. I would encourage them to have an outlet uh, to let out that frustration, uh, whether that's working out, whether that's running, whatever that might be, to find that outlet and engage it. But to also, to the father, to understand that the child still needs him and the wife and mom still need him. And so it, it can't be all about you. At some point, you're, you're going to have to really identify what can you do to serve and as well as protect your family as much as you can.
0: Now, tell us the names of your boys if you're comfortable. Are you comfortable doing that? Sure,
2: um, sure. Yeah, okay. we've got uh, three boys. Uh, Tyson is 13, Brock is 11, and Case is 10.
0: And Case is the one that has Hunter syndrome, the 10-year-old. The youngest. You know, that's a great point, Chris. We often don't think about what effect does this have on the child. You know, we think, how does a parent deal with this? What does a mom do? What does this dad do? What does this do to your marriage? But for the child, of course, whose story isn't written, and they've never lived life, so they don't know what to expect, what's normal, what's not normal, how did Case respond to this news. I mean, I guess that's all he knew, but he did have two older brothers who were different from him.
2: I will let Melissa jump in on this, but I'm going to tell you something. One of the things that my wife did was she became an expert on this disease. And and I, and I don't mean that like tongue in cheek. I mean that she was having conversations with doctors and specialists on their level. Uh, that's mm-hmm. how much she dug into this. And so much so that uh, literally she's helped people all around the world uh, who newly diagnosed families through her blog and through her website with phone calls and things of that nature. So for her, she truly turned this into a way to serve people. Mm-hmm. Despite needing to be served, she was focused on helping others. So I just wanted to put that out there. But the amazing thing she did with Case, with his therapies is that she made all the therapies, all the doctor's appointments, she figured out how to make them fun. She figured out ways to get him engaged in it, uh, things that they were going to do fun after the doctor's appointments. And so for Case, it just was a way of life. Uh, But for her, she truly helped him not feel any different. You know, it was one of those things where he was loved and supported just like his brothers were.
0: Melissa, this sounds like a full plus, plus, plus time job. And I know you're an attorney as well. So how did you, once Case had the diagnosis and you're going through all these doctor's appointments, how did you manage that with your schedule? It was challenging. I'll I'll admit, by
1: that time I had left my career as a corporate attorney and I was a strategy consultant at that time and I was on my own schedule. But even that gave way eventually to the needs that he had and it was really a unique preparation to do what I'm doing now, which is running a nonprofit with a mission to cure his disease. And so all of those things really prepared me for that. So I can't complain.
0: I'm anxious to talk about uh, your nonprofit as well, and we'll get to that because I want everybody to know about it and to know what you do. So How did your other boys respond to their younger brother having a special need?
1: When he was diagnosed, he was two. So they were three and and four, almost five. So it's really all they've ever known. But Mm -hmm. things have changed over time based on his treatments and them meeting other children with the disease And so it's given them a lot of perspective because of not only the the nature of the special need, but because of the the normally terminal nature of the disease. And so Mm -hmm. them being able to care for these other families and these other children, it it helps them relate better to their own brother.
0: So that's wonderful. So you didn't just teach them about their brother, you expose them to other children with the same illness. Okay. But it's not a super common illness. So how did you how did were you able to do that? Did you have other kids in Nashville that had it? Or did you how did you do that?
1: We actually had one other child in Nashville that we used to go weekly to the hospital to get treatment with. But there are a number of families in the United States. And so we've all met on social media and we have get togethers, uh, a big one annually, and then some local gatherings where they meet other children with the disease.
0: Wow. Parents, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Chris and Melissa. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. At Warby Parker, they believe eyewear should be extremely affordable and fashion-forward. Their glasses start at just $95, including prescription lenses with anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. And... For every pair you buy, a pair is distributed to someone in need. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Their home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door where you can try them on in the comfort of your home and get feedback from friends and family. You can try the frames for five days before sending them back using a free prepaid return shipping label with no obligation to purchase. It's 100% free and it's so easy. My dog could do it. Friends, I will tell you, I love Warby Parker glasses. I ordered a pair after getting my five pairs shipped directly to my home. I picked out a pair, showed my adult daughters and they flipped over them and I ordered a pair. Friends, head to warbyparker.com slash Meg to order your free home try-ons today. Choose the five frames you'd like to try on, try them when they arrive, mail the frames back, and choose your favorite pair to have your prescription added to and order. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free and shipping is free. Visit warbyparker.com to begin your free home try-on experience today. After you place your home try-on order, download the Warby Parker app from the iTunes App Store. The app allows you to take photos of yourself with each frame on so your friends and family can help you pick the best pair. Parents, you expect the same high-quality, clean label nutrition for your kids as you do for yourselves, right? But all too often, we have to compromise when it comes to snacks. Thankfully, now there's RX Bar Kids, a clean label snack bar made with high quality real ingredients designed specifically for kids. With egg whites, fruit and nuts as the base, RX Bar Kids contains 7 grams of protein and have absolutely no added sugar, gluten, soy, dairy or bad stuff. And with three flavors including chocolate chip, apple cinnamon raisin and berry blast, they're perfect for any time kids want something tasty and filling. Friends, I will tell you, I give RX Bar Kids to my grandkids, and when I give them a bar, I take a bar myself. They are absolutely delicious. You can find RX Bar Kids at Target stores or for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash Meg and enter promo code MEG at checkout. That's rxbar.com slash Meg. Promo code MEG for 25% off your first order. Many siblings of children with special needs, I know, have difficulty because they feel they get the short end of the stick as far as their parents' time and energy and attention. How have you two finessed that with your other two boys? Because... A child who has a lot of doctors' appointments takes so much time. I mean, there's nothing you can do. How did you navigate that with all three of your boys to to balance things out? That was challenging i won't I won't downplay that. I think at the beginning in the
1: first few years, they definitely got less attention. And you know, we had to, I feel like make up for that a lot in the last you know 3 to 4 years give them very intentional one-on-one attention and you know they had a hard time processing his differences and their different expectations for him and so we really had to walk them through what their expectations should be and and how we felt about them much more as the years have gone on
0: much more so probably than a a family a parent of a child who doesn't have special needs because you just assume your kids feel loved you assume they feel fine about the amount of time you're spending them with them but you really had to say hang on a minute you know we really need to put this out on the table and say this is who you are to us we're trying our best you really had to talk about everything didn't you yeah yes. you,
2: we really did and you had to be really intentional and, and because of cases uh disease and the therapies and treatments you know a lot of which is done in the home with his weekly infusion so they were around uh they're able to see that and so it's one of those things of being intentional with them uh you know the boys not only the two older brothers uh doing things with them but also doing things individually with them and so we became very intentional about those things, whether it's I'm taking one to dinner or one to breakfast or both. And so doing things, you know, without their brother to give them that attention, but also doing things with Case without his older brothers giving him attention. Right. And so yeah. it just became this uh, mapping out clearly of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it.
1: And they've actually dove into the disease, too. So Case's older brother, our middle son, did Hunter syndrome as his science fair project this past wow. spring and he was talking to, you know, first and second graders all the way up to seventh graders about the disease and about infusions and about gene therapy which we're trying to fund as a cure for Hunter syndrome and and he even issued a social media challenge. He he really dove into it and it
0: made him feel very proud of how he could help his brother. Wow, that's extraordinary. And I and I love to see that. I'll tell you one of the things that I routinely see in siblings who have grown up with a a sibling with special needs, is they feel so enriched and so blessed by the life of that child, they can't imagine having life another way. Mm -hmm. And it's over and over and over again, I see that, you know, kids who grow up like that, and I imagine the same is going to be true with your sons as well. Tell us what a week in the Hogan home is like
2: today. (laughs) Chaos, (laughs) chaos, a lot of food is eaten, a lot of food with these three boys. But I mean, they, you know, they're going to school, you know, each and every day. And, um, you know, my wife does cases infusion once a week, typically on a Sunday afternoon. We are running around to sports practices. She is like a shuttle driver during the week. I try to get there if I'm in town, you know, to be at some of the practices. And then we have games on Saturday. And so it is uh, it is busy. It is very, very busy. But my wife said something years ago, and it, it, it really hit me hard. It was one of those things we kept talking about when we used to be able to, you know, before the diagnosis, when we used to and it was one of those things she goes you know what this is now our new normal Mm -hmm. and it was like a wake-up call for me so i didn't keep looking back but i could really look at and go you know what that's exactly right uh there is no magic thing that's going to happen right now to change our reality so now moving forward how are we going to deal with this new normal
1: right right and you know for the For example, this week, we were at the hospital yesterday for orthopedics appointment and x-rays, and then we're at the hospital all day Friday for uh, a dosing for his clinical trial that he's in. So it's a lot, but you just have to embrace it. And physically, it must be very tiring as well. Yes, yes, it is. I have lots of people tell me that I need to get more sleep um, because when the kids are at school, I'm working on the foundation work and and what we do and then the appointments and things like that. So it's not uncommon that I'm getting about three
0: to four hours sleep a night, which is not very healthy. Oh my, (laughs) yeah, not at all. I mean, not at all. I know that both of you have a strong faith in God. How has this challenged that faith or has it?
1: In the first few weeks, it was very challenging because I had to look at this scenario, especially, you know, it didn't hurt me so much that he would have special needs or that he would have additional challenges. The really hard part was to to know that we would watch him disappear from us cognitively and and then, you know, pass away. And that was the challenge. And I had to really look at my faith and say, if I believe what I say I believe then how does that fit with my sorrow over this situation? And um, it really challenged me to to look at it differently and, and to say, hey, this is part of a plan. And if him dealing with this and us dealing with this as a family is part of that, then I need to see what I need to do for the Lord as part of that plan.
0: That's very nice. I, I I would have had a hard time being so nice. I think for a while, God and I would have not been on speaking terms. You know, knowing my personality. How about you, Chris?
2: Well, I, I, it was definitely a wrestling match. I, I, I don't think uh, I ever questioned my faith. I think I did question why this was happening to my son, why him, why us. Uh, those were questions that I said out loud and internally often. I think it was only because of my faith that I was able to truly wake up and do the things that I needed to do for my family. That was one of those things where you, uh, you take that deep breath and you understand. That we're an example. You know, um, I think someone said that to me about four or five years ago. They said, we had no idea what you were walking through. Uh, and don't don't know how you do what you do with your day job and still walk through that. And I realized that that's only because of faith. It's only because of the grace of God yeah. that I'm able to do anything that I do. But that was one of those eye-opening moments for me to realize it's not just how we handle it, but people are watching us. You know, people are looking at how do we deal with this seemingly insurmountable situation and still have faith and still have joy. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of those things where we can always point back to the, our Lord and Savior to say it's Because of him.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, and I will say, Chris, and I know you well, you're a very public figure. You're an author. You're a speaker. You have a podcast. Very, very successful business-wise. And I would just think that the pressure would seem a bit overwhelming because so many eyes are on you. And yet I know because I see in you that you are God's grace walking and talking because you're really an extraordinary person and you seem happy a lot which is <laughs> you know which is which is wonderful you know yeah. and and it's true it, it it's I mean f- God is real and faith is real, and He delivers, doesn't He?
2: Yes, He does, and and I can tell you the blessing that my wife has been able to be to other families through this situation has really kind of blown me away. At first, I used to get on her and tell her, "Hey, you know, focus. You know, we got to take care of our house. What are you doing? What are you doing on the online and talking to all these people?" And it was her working through this process and using what she learned from specialists to help families in India, in China, in Japan, England that didn't have access to the information she had access to. And so it, it truly has become uh, a mission. Uh, it truly has been one of those things where this little boy has impacted families around the globe. He really and truly has. Uh, and it's one of those things that you look at it and you just you take a deep breath and you're so grateful. Uh, this little boy has pure joy. And it's one of those things where, I mean, he's just smiling. He's happy uh, and running. And, you know, he's been through countless surgeries uh, mm-hmm. Countless pokes and procedures, and if that little boy can have joy, as tough as his life has been, then why can't I? Right.
0: Mm-hmm. So you have seen God bless him and your boys.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. We feel I kind of go by the philosophy: to whom much is given, much is required. And I feel like we have been blessed so immensely, not only you know with having these three boys, because at one point we thought we couldn't have kids, and so we have these three boys. And I say, how can I be upset? that one of them has more needs or I may not have them very long. Mm-hmm. And so those blessings and just being able to see him laugh and he actually got in a clinical trial a number of years ago that we hope is is helping him be stable for, for some period of time. We call it our bridge until we can get to a cure for this disease. So we mm-hmm. feel very blessed about that.
0: Wow. Melissa, I wonder if God sent you to law school so that you could run an organization like you do now. So can you tell us about your organization and how it started and what you do? I run a nonprofit
1: called Project Alive, And it actually was an outgrowth of a blog I started in 2010 that helped rally the Hunter Syndrome community, and then into a Facebook group, and then into a nonprofit, which is now called Project Alive. And our mission is to cure Hunter Syndrome. So we support research, and we try to move the science toward a cure and have been funding preclinical research for about five years now, and now are ready to go into the first human clinical trial for gene therapy in Hunter syndrome, if if we can fund it. Seriously, that fast?
0: In seven years, you're ready to go to a trial? Yes. Well, and and we've
1: only been funding the preclinical research for five years. So we feel like we've done a lot of work, but still have more to go.
0: Does your work call you to travel much or to uh, go places, or do you do it primarily from Nashville? I do travel some. So
1: I work a lot out of my home, but then I travel to conferences. I travel to meet with our researchers in Ohio. And um, you know, whenever I need to, to meet
0: with companies who might be researching in our space, I do travel some, which is challenging. You know, it's funny. I have a number of patients in my practice whose uh, children have rare diseases, and I will tell you they're intimidating to deal with as a <laughs> pediatrician because they truly know more than I do. I mean, you become an expert And when you said that, Chris, I'm sure, Melissa, you are an expert. You know the latest treatment. You know the cause. You know the science behind it, the biochemistry probably behind it, the symptoms, treatments, outcomes. And I think it's very important as a parent of a child with special needs to realize that you may well know more than your pediatrician, even some of the doctors taking care of your child. And to that end, you need to really speak up and talk and be filled with grace and humility, but also be fairly assertive, you know, because I think doctors appreciate, they should appreciate when parents are so invested and so well educated on an illness, because you have the time to study it. Whereas doctors, even in that field, don't have the time to spend on just one disease. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there are almost 7,000 rare diseases. And Mm
1: -hmm. so I think parents, it is easier for us to become the experts because doctors don't have time to know all of those and to know all of the latest treatments and therapies. And so- you know, going into select doctors, I very much love doctors who say, Look, I'm glad you know what you're doing. What do you think we should do? Mm-hmm. And so they and I are part of a team in helping to try to save our son.
0: Exactly. You know, I learned many, many years ago in private practice in pediatrics that when a mom came in and told me something was wrong with her child, I couldn't let that child out of the room till I found out what it was because that child had something. Mothers just know their children. Even mothers who have kids who don't have special needs. You just, you know when something is off with your child. Melissa, how have people helped you the most and what do you need from your friends and from the medical community and from the public?
1: friends have helped by coming alongside us in the work that we're doing at Project Alive. It has been so encouraging and just life-giving to see them come along and say, what can I do? Can I hold a fundraiser? Can I understand the disease better? Can I share this on social media? Can I talk to this news outlet about Project Alive? And that's really just been something that has filled my heart in the last several years. And, you know, we're really excited about what we're doing. And we've been doing a documentary series at Project Alive about Hunter syndrome. And our family actually was just featured this week in an episode that was released. And so we've had a lot of people sharing that and really helping us raise this two and a half million dollars that we need to fund this trial. Wonderful. So how can people find out about Project Alive? Yes, they can go to projectalive.org, and that features the entire documentary series. It tells them how to donate to support that clinical trial. And uh, we also, they can follow the progress of the funding at gofundme.com slash projectalive. And that shows up to date where we are on this funding, and we're over half a million dollars, which is really
0: exciting, but it still leaves two million to go. So do you have a time that you need the money by, or it's just whenever Well, we have milestones we have to hit. So I have to
1: write a $750,000 check in about two months. Mm -hmm. And so we, we need to hit that. And then, you know, it's, it's broken up into about three pods of money until early spring next year. So by early spring, we really need to have raised that two and a half million to start the trial by early summer.
0: So not only is parenting a full-time plus job, now you have running an organization that's a full-time plus job. So I understand you probably really do just sleep three hours a night, don't you, Melissa?
1: Yes, yes.
0: It's, but it's, it's passion. I, just, I tell people I just
1: want to save kids. That's yeah. all I want. I just want to save kids.
0: And even if you go through all of this, all of this, all of this for one child here, it's all worth it, isn't it?
1: It is. It is. And actually, there'll be nine kids in this clinical trial. And so I just get almost in tears to think about these nine kids and these parents who might not have to watch their child deteriorate over time and and just get to have a full life in his case, one of the children, he actually won't be eligible to be one of those nine
0: because he's in a previous trial. But I'm, I'm okay with that. Well, good for you. And Chris, how do you support your amazing wife in all of this? Do you just sort of stand by and watch? I mean, you must be so proud of her.
2: Oh, I'm very proud of her. I, um, you know, understanding what it is that we're trying to achieve here. Everything we do is really through the lens as a, as a family and as a team. So, you know, understanding that and understanding my job and how to support, uh, financially, emotionally. Um, and you know, if she's got to travel to adjust my schedule, so I'm there with the boys, uh, and all those things, you know, and it's, it's about give and take. Uh, that's what teams do. That's what families do. So I'm, very proud. I'm very excited for the initiative of Project Alive. You know, as you look at it, Dr. Meg, there's really two choices. You sit back and do nothing and you watch kids die. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the reality. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or you step up and you try to do the best you can, how you can, where you can. And I think this is where the the funding for Project Alive, it's one of those, it's not an option for us. These families that we've met and we've gotten to know, these kids that we're seeing literally start to decline. Uh, where they lose the ability to speak, uh, the ability to walk, and some even the ability to eat. And so what do you do? Well, I think you you do what you can, how you can. And so that's why we're so passionate about this. And uh, we are going to connect with enough people that want to join us in this mission, and we will raise this money, and we will save these children.
0: Well, we will do everything from our podcast and what I can do to get the word out. And you do need to write a $750,000 check in two months, Melissa.
1: Yes, yes.
0: We have an amazing global audience. And so I would just ask people, please go to Project Alive and help give whatever you can to this incredible cause. Before we go, I have one last question. Can you tell us about Case today? What can he do? What are his limitations? What is he able to do on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yes, he's a happy kid. He really is. And like I said, we're thankful that he entered a clinical trial a number of years ago that seems to keep him stable for now. It's it's very arduous for him, but he can get up and help himself get dressed, and he's just smiling and laughing and watching his iPad, and he can feed himself and uh, love his brothers, and, and he loves to help me and hold the doors for people. <laughs> That's oh. his favorite
0: thing is to hold the door and, and be oh. very gentlemanly. Oh, Chris, before we go, I would like you to speak to families who don't have kids with special needs. What can they do to help and support friends or families they may know with a child who has special needs?
2: Yeah, I I would tell you this. Being one of those families, obviously, we have been the recipient of some incredible friends. And I would say, if you have someone in your community or in your church that has a special needs child, please engage with those families. Please make the time. Go over. Don't wait for them to ask you to do things. You're going to need to just insert yourself. Bring them dinner. Cut their grass. Offer to babysit for a couple of hours. If they have other kids, take those other kids on excursions. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sit down and talk with them about things that aren't disease-related, that are life-related. Having talked to families out there that don't have these things, I can tell you, This is something that is missing that neighbors and people can do. Melissa, are there other things you would encourage people to do?
1: I would agree with Chris. It is about really inserting yourself. If you say, what can I do? It's almost harder for parents of kids with special needs to come up with how you can help them than for you just to observe their life and say, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do this every week or every month. And it is such a blessing when people do that.
0: I think you're right. I think that people sometimes, when they don't understand an illness or they don't understand a family situation or person's situation, we tend to just sort of stay in the distance or in the background and go, well, I hope I can help. If you need anything, please call me. But people aren't going to call because mm-hmm. they don't want to be a burden. So really take a risk and risk risk. Looking like you're overstepping bounds mm-hmm. and offer help and give help. They can always say, No, thank you. Yes. But I no, think we need right. to really stick our necks out and take a risk if it feels like a risk because many times people don't want to offend another person and that causes us to do nothing. So, what you're yes. saying is risk offending somebody and just offer them help and say, I'm going to do this until you instruct me otherwise, but I'm not yes. going to go away.
2: Yes. 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 That would be, you would end up being more of a blessing than you would know to that family.
0: Well, God bless you both. Thank you so much. This has been an extraordinary conversation with you. I have been blessed. I have been inspired by both of you and by Little Case. And we just hope and pray for great miracles for all those little ones out there with Hunter's Syndrome. Thanks Thank so much for joining me.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Thank Dr. Thank you Meg. for having us.
0: All right, parents, now it's time to get social. I'd like to hear from you and interact with you. You can connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at MegMeekerMD. Or if you have a question, send it to askmeg at megmeekermd.com. Today I have a question from Stephanie who writes, Dear Dr. Meg, my four-year-old doesn't eat at mealtime with the family when she should. It's always a huge fight. She won't stay in her chair. She complains, never finishes her food, and is always hungry about 30 minutes after she gets up how should I approach this? I try very hard to limit snacks, but it's extremely hard to make or go between meals without anything to eat. Well, Melissa, are you living in my house? I will tell you, I have a four-year-old granddaughter who does the very same thing. And it's frustrating, and it's very, very common. Uh, First of all, rule number one, never ever have food fights with your kid, no matter what. Food isn't worth fighting about. You offer food, you take it away, and that's it. Uh, The second thing that you say at the very end is, it's very hard to limit snacks, but extremely hard to make her go between meals. It's hard for you to make her go between meals without anything to eat, but she is perfectly fine going eight hours without anything to eat. She is four. So here's what I suggest that you do. Remember, at four, what you're trying to teach your daughter is to sit with a family during mealtime because it's pleasant. But when she sits with a family during mealtime, she doesn't need to eat she can eat when she's hungry but what you're trying to establish is at a certain time of the day at dinner time or at breakfast, or at lunchtime, we as a family collect, we sit around the table, we enjoy a meal, we're together, and we talk. The point is to have her join with your family, but she doesn't need to eat. You don't want to get into food fights. Try to engage her in conversation. Try to engage everybody in a fun activity. Tell her it's going to be show-and-tell time, that when she sits down at mealtime, you're going to be eating your dinner. She's going to have some food in front of her, maybe even just a snack, but during that time, you want her to show the family something that she made that day tell them something that she did that day or something she learned that day in other words Just teach her to have fun with a family sitting around the table. Eventually, you'll get her to eat with a family, but first things first, enjoyment first. Second, remember that four year olds have notoriously unpredictable appetites. Many four year olds only eat one good meal a day, so it's important that you make sure to pack in those calories and nutrition at that meal. Many kids, for instance, only eat a good breakfast because they've had an eight or nine or ten hour fast the night before. So if your daughter only eats a really good meal at breakfast, make sure she gets eggs and she gets some fruits and some veggies and a starch in there. So pack it in so that if lunchtime she's not very hungry, that's okay. She can take a couple bites of something and same is true at dinner. She won't starve. Third, limit her snacks. I am not a believer in an open kitchen, open refrigerator policy. It breeds terrible eating habits in all kids, old kids, young kids. Kids should respect the the refrigerator and they should respect the pantry. And you know, you should offer them meals three times a day and snacks once in between those meals. That's it. Other than that, the kitchen's closed. A, because it's impractical. You don't need to be in there or dad doesn't need to be in there cleaning up the kitchen all the time. Two, kids need to learn to get hungry and then fill up. Kids who graze all day long never get hungry, and they're never fully satisfied. If you allow your child to go for several hours between meals, they'll get legitimately hungry, and then they'll get legitimately full. And that's an important cue for the body to learn. So don't let her just graze all day long. You're not going to starve your child. She can go four or five or six hours without eating. So if she wants Oreos, half an hour after you just offered her her turkey sandwich, no Oreos. She can have an apple or a pear or a piece of fruit. That's it. The only time she gets sweets is if she eats her good meal. So you need to make some rules and stick to it. You feel like a bad guy, but oh well, she'll thank you in the end. Parents, I love answering your questions. So please keep sending them in to me. You can email me all of your questions to ask Meg at megmeekermd.com. I want to thank my guests, Chris and Melissa Hogan. You are an extraordinary couple and you're very inspiring. Listeners, please go to Melissa's website or savingcase.com. That's savingcase.com. Check out her work, support them if you can. It's a very important cause. Now I'd like to recap my points to ponder. One, Give your spouse room to process his or her feelings his own way. Two, don't feel guilty about unequal time given to siblings, but plan outings and put them on a schedule. Three, if your friend has a child with special needs, offer specific help. Don't ask them to call you when they need you. So until next time, parents, remember, great kids are raised, not born.
1: Hey, this is Bobby, producer of Meg Meeker's Parenting Great Kids podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to episode 37, Raising Kids with Special Needs. And thanks to you, Dr. Meg's parenting revolution has grown to over a million downloads. You can like Dr. Meeker on Facebook and follow her on Twitter and Instagram, at MegMeekerMD. Just as a reminder, go to MegMeekerMD.com and sign up for her newsletter for giveaway opportunities and updates. And don't forget to share the podcast,
0: write us a review, and click subscribe so you won't miss an episode.